0: Everybody, welcome to another podcast of the Catholic Talk Show. I'm here again with Father Rich Pagano. Hey there, Father Rich. Hey guys, how you doing this morning? Fantastic. Happy to be here with you. Very good, Ryan Sheehil. Oh, good morning. As always, it's really nice to be with you guys today. And today we're going to talk about the uh, seven famous people who converted to Catholicism. Well, not the seven, but seven famous people who converted to Catholicism.
1: <laughs> it's it's the Catholic Talk Show. And we should call them the 7. Wow. It's because the they're pretty 7 of the
0: show. Amazing people, these they, 7. They are. Yeah. You might be hear, surprised. I hear I hear cowboys in the distance. There's cowboys. Yeah. Yeah, you know, cowboys. What else? There's uh, cowboys, cowboys and movie stars and
2: kings and king oh political activists, all kinds of people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's jump in. Absolutely. Uh, You know, well, before we get started, um, go to catholictalkshow.com. On there, you can subscribe to us, whether you use iTunes or Stitcher, CastBox, uh, Spotify, whatever service you use. Make sure you uh, subscribe and give us a review. It really helps us uh, get this show out to more people, helps us to let more people know about all the dumb stories that we tell on this talk show, and we really appreciate if you do it. So we're going to go ahead and give you 10 seconds to do that. We're good at dumb. Subscribe. Click. Subscribe now. All right, click. They did it. They all subscribed
1: <laughs> because they really want to know what seven famous people that's right converted the to Catholicism. Seven. D- seven. B seven. That's right. So what's number one? Mm. Well, you know,
2: I mean, throughout history, there's been just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases of conversion, and a lot of times when the celebrity converts, people are like, "Well, why are you talking about a celebrity? Why are they more important?" And so, not that their conversion story is more important. It's just that it's a higher profile, so it serves a, a lot of times as a witness to other people, just because of the profile they share. That their testament and their testimony to conversion um, maybe has a little bit more legs, and the story gets told a little bit more. So, um, yeah, notoriety.
0: That's right. It gets for sure. notoriety. Yeah, I actually have a friend of mine who knows somebody that had a conversion. He's an actor and. And it was on the hush-hush, you know? He had people coming over to his house, and the I think Scott I Hahn gave yeah. retreats at his house. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. yeah.
2: Didn't want anyone to know about it.
0: <clears throat> yep. So if you're looking for who he is, I can't tell you.
1: <laughs> so are these seven famous people, Are they have they passed away, or are they still alive? <clears throat> these ones are all dead. Wow. They've all went on to that reward
2: that that conversion got them. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So... You know, we're here in Hollywood at the Cast Media Studios, and Hollywood is just, the, you know, it's the land of movies. And the golden age of movies, I don't know if there was a bigger movie star than John Wayne. The Duke. No. I I mean, he was he was the man. He was- Oh, I love the Duke. But every everyone looked up to be, they all wanted to be John Wayne. He was in, you know, yep. war movies and cowboy movies. He was just the coolest guy around.
1: Great model of masculinity. I grew up watching John Wayne flicks with my grandfather.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his, his movies came from another age where I read an article that when John Wayne was making movies, he was always in charge, right? And he was, he was portraying someone in charge, whether he was the general or the lieutenant. And the, the portrayal of the people in charge and the leadership was noble. And then after his death, it became where the leadership was corrupt and they were always looking at the leaders as the bad guy in the films and that was a real fundamental shift in the way that uh, hollywood portrayed leadership. So it's a pretty interesting little i guess way of looking at how uh, storytelling has changed over the years. Yeah. But um, you know, John Wayne, he, you know, he lived his whole life he was not um, he's not a religious person at all. He was just a badass. Just a badass. That's right. Was, Who has an airport down the street. He's a patriot, he was a movie star, he's a cowboy, he was that's it. So, you know, he, he kind of, um, according to, you know, people who knew him, he was pretty irritated with churchgoers. He thought there was a lot of arguing, you know, a lot of arguing, you know, among denominations. And he saw that, you know, church was maybe not something that was for him. But then as he got, he started getting older, he started maybe considering it a little bit more. And he told, um, he would tell his family, he's like, I'm a cardiac Catholic. And like, what does that mean? He's like, you'll know when the time comes, right? So John Wayne, uh, in the early 70s, he, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And what does someone like John Wayne do when they get diagnosed with lung cancer?
1: Probably goes out and buys a pack of Marlboro Reds and just <laughs> smokes them. No, he beats cancer. He's John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the first Chuck Norris. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Before Chuck Norris. Right. He beat lung cancer, but he had he had one of his lungs removed. Oh wow! Yeah, like Pope Francis. Pope Francis only has one lung. That's right. Did
0: he have cancer in that lung?
2: No, he had a bacterial infection. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Serious stuff. Yeah. So at that point, after he had that um, that surgery and he, he beat cancer, he was he really started considering more, you know, his you know his fate and, and you know end of life and what was going to yeah. happen. Uh, but he still didn't make he didn't make the conversion yet. Um, then a few years later. It came back. He he was diagnosed again with cancer, and this time he wasn't able to beat it. And as he was um, nearing the end of his life, he started having um, you know the priests come. And then one day he finally um, he he told his uh, his son Patrick. He said, I, "I think it's time to call a priest." And um, he went and the priest went and he converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. And that's, wow. that's why he said, look, I'm a cardiac Catholic. And when I know my heart's going to stop, it's, it's time to make that deathbed conversion.
0: <laughs> it's time to become good
2: Catholic. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and a lot of people throughout history, you know, it was really more prevalent in the early churches. They would not convert <laughs> until they were on their deathbed purposefully, like uh, Constantine. You know, he was, he legalized Christianity. He, called the Council of Nicaea, but he never converted himself until he was, you know, hours
1: away from death. And during that period, there were a great number of people that would not receive the Eucharist, even if they were, even if they were baptized, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's true. I mean, people converted at the very end of their lives, you know, they, they felt that they were not worthy of Mm. receiving the Eucharist. And a number of people, like like Sheila was just saying, they would wait till the very, very end yeah. to go through the sacraments of initiation and and be brought into the fullness of the church.
0: But what does that tell you about like the mercy of God? Like He extends it every moment of every breath of your life here on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, no questions asked. You know, I mean, that's just a love we can't really fathom. The greatest attribute you
1: know? of God's love is His mercy. Saint Faustina being the secretary of divine mercy wrote beautifully and eloquently from her dialogues with Jesus and it colors in, like you said, at every dimension and every breath of life, God's mercy is present to us
0: and holding us in existence. And another thing you said on another episode is that the Eucharist is, uh, is food for the sick. It's not a reward for righteous, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was just thinking about that when you you know you're talking about these people excusing themselves from, you know, communion. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: And that can definitely develop within people. And Pope Francis has been fantastic in being able to catechize that specific point is yeah. that Eucharist is not a reward for the righteous, but it is medicine for the sick. And we come forward to the altar as repenting sinners. Yep. We are in the process of constantly turning away from sin to embrace a greater communion with Christ so that we can build up that likeness that we have in our relationship and dignity to our baptism as well as to the reality of being created in the image and likeness of God. But it's also important to note that
2: for to serve as a medicine, you have you have to know that you're sick. Mm-hmm. Um, receiving unworthily is still the most grave thing, you know. Yeah. But it, it's, it's not— a, like you said, it's not a reward, but it, you, you have to have the recognition that you're sick. Like John Wayne, yeah. he knew he was sick. He knew he was dying. So he knew that that was the time to convert. And I think a lot of those conversions would happen where they knew that if they didn't wait until their deathbed, they would probably... Screw up
1: their salvation. Mm-hmm. You know. Saint Faustina also goes into her diary talking about the unrepentant sinner that unworthily receives the Eucharist, and Jesus's experience of going through a second passion. That there is a reality of doing harm to the body of Christ when we approach the altar in an unworthy manner. Mm-hmm. So
0: that's worthiness. Worthiness Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. repenting.
1: It's disposition. You know, we really need to be properly disposed to participate and turning to Christ is a turning away from selfishness and sin. When we enter into communion with Christ, that should be something that is visible, not only in word, but in deed. And God calls us to be active members of the mystical body of Christ and that gives us a great commission. We have to remember that we, in our baptisms, are we are anointed priest, prophet, and king. Those come with specific responsibilities yeah. that we need to live out.
0: So, did you guys know that John Wayne's grandson is a priest? Mm-hmm. I did.
1: I can't. I, I really want to meet this guy. We've got to get uh, him on the Father, show,
0: Father Munoz. Munoz. Yeah. yeah, it might have been Patrick's son. No. So I don't know. Uh, Depending on how many kids John Wayne had, the Duke was—he um, was married multiple
2: times. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, him and Father Muñoz's Mune- um, grandmother, grandmother, were married. Gotcha. Got civilly divorced. Uh, his grandmother never remarried until after John Wayne died. But he, she prayed her entire life for his conversion, which ultimately <laughs> happened. Uh, but yeah, he, his
1: grandson became a Catholic priest. Uh, here yeah. in Los Angeles. Orange right? County. Orange yeah. County. Orange yeah. County. And he truly, you know, his grandmother was a very, very avid and devout Catholic. And she constantly, as she just pointed out, would constantly pray and, and influence John to move in that direction, the Duke, you know, and she was always that great example to him. And for her, even to wait, because she held that marriage as right. sacramental. Yeah, before that bond was dissolved in death to marry again is pretty impressive, and it shows the reverence of of her love for the church and the sacrament to wait that long.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So John Wayne, the Duke, the Duke converted. That's so awesome, man! I absolutely love the John Wayne flicks. <laughs> I really do, man.
0: He's, there's something really hardened about him. Like, oh, you know.
1: <laughs> it's just admirable.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, man. Yeah, but that's that's you know, of all, the, of all the badass things he did, that's the that's the
1: best one there, I think. Yeah, yeah. For
2: sure. Agreed.
0: Right. Agreed.
1: Agreed. So is he like the number one of the seven? He's the first one we got to. Oh, okay, okay.
2: So who's number two? So number two, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah. In the movie? obi Not In the movie. Oh, the actor? Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Actor Alec no, Obi-Wan converted to Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. You don't remember
2: that part of the movie? Yeah, he's in the got, outtakes. He apostasized from the Jedi religion and uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: we gotta bring up Obi-Wan quotes. <laughs> yeah, so Alec,
2: yeah, Alec the, the, the actor who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness, uh converted to Catholicism. And um the story behind his conversion is actually pretty cool. So you know um, you know GK Chesterton, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote um the father brown mysteries right and they were like kind of uh, father brown's like a i don't know It's, a fictional, th- thing, right? yeah, it's a fictional thing right it's fictional thing it's it's murder she wrote before murder she wrote God, they, yeah. i think they kind of ripped it off you know he's a you know a parish priest who goes around and solves you know crimes and murders and stuff
1: murder she wrote That was my grandmother's jam. I love, well, not the song, but the show. (laughs) My
2: father-in-law, I once, uh, we did the math. And we took the amount of deaths that happened in Murder, She Wrote, versus the population of the city that shows on the, it shows on the sign like. Of course um, you did. And. The city where murder she wrote takes place has the highest murder rate by like a thousand of <laughs> anywhere in the world. It's like by far the most dangerous place to live in the world. Next to the Vatican, which has the hundred <laughs> well, percent crime no, rate. The higher crime rate, but the murder rate, rate, murder, murder rate. Not even close. rate yeah, murder not even close. rate is, you know. Angela Lansbury's like hard, <laughs> man. Like the Duke's got nothing on her. She's like living in like some serious <laughs> stuff, right? Oh my god. So anyway, so Alec Guinness is playing. Um he was he was playing. Sir Allen. Sir Alec oh, Guinness. Guinness. Yeah, sorry, sir. So he was playing a role in um, a movie about Father Brown, you know, one of the Chesterton, Father Brown movies. And he was filming it in um, France. And on a break, he was um, he was dressed up like a priest. Right. You know, he's wearing a cassock and he's walking down and a little kid comes up to him and just holds his hand and walks with him. And he's like, you know, he'd always kind of he'd grown up, you know, Anglican and always had a kind of dislike of Catholicism. But then when he, when he experienced that, he's like, you know, any religion that can instill this kind of faith and just goodness in children is something I should look more into. Mm. So later on um, in his life, that, that, that kind of softened his heart towards Catholicism. But later on in his life, his son, uh, Matthew, contracted polio. And he would start going and praying for his son, Alec Guinnesswood. And he made a promise that if his son got better, he would convert to Catholicism. His son got better and um, Obi-Wan
0: converted. He paid his dues. He so. did. You hear a lot of those types of conversion stories. <coughs> oh yeah. You know? Mm-hmm.
1: I pulled up some Obi-Wan quotes, because <laughs> I just love it. Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin, they betray you. And I can't help but think of Ignatian principles for the discernment of spirits. As being associated with yeah. thoughts that angels and demons provoke by thought. And it is that initial appeal, then entertained, that leads the will to concede and move in a particular direction, whether in the direction of virtue or vice. Hmm. And it's fascinating because Obi-Wan knew it. <laughs> he knew it. It must have been that inspiration. And the other one that I like to, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Think of Jesus, you know. Think of the saints. Think of, think of the martyrs, and even in the in the movie, the star, you know, in Star Wars, that's you know, like that's yeah. the catalyst, right?
2: Yeah, I, re- I got to think that uh, George Lucas, when he was, you know, developing the Jedi, were, that really has to have some, you know, correlation to,
1: you know, spiritual monks, Catholic martyrs, priesthood. You know, yeah. No, for sure. I've thought that too. In the battle between light and darkness, and it's yeah. so rich. It's yeah. absolutely rich. I can't help but imagine, though, that that beautiful story that you expressed when the kid came up and held his hand. I was in my cassock on the feast of Corpus Christi a number of years ago in Rome. And I was walking down processing with the Blessed Sacrament because they have this tradition of going from St. John Lateran to Santa Maria Maggiore. And the Pope is there adoring the Blessed Sacrament in this motorcade and thousands of people are in procession to go adore and receive benediction in the courtyard in front of St. Mary Major. And as I was walking, we all filed in to the courtyard and people were pressing up against each other. And we were all squeezed in there. And right next to me was this little Italian kid, probably like six years old, and his mother. And the kid was just frantic. And you could tell, I just looked down and he was just filled with fear and he didn't know what was going on, he couldn't see. And I looked at his mother and I said, in the universal language, you know, I can pick him up and put him on my shoulders. And she shook her head and she smiled. And I I grabbed him, I put him on my shoulders and his whole face just lit up as he looked toward the blessed sacrament, exposed on this beautiful altar in front of St. Mary Major. And it was just a beautiful experience that I had. And, you know, to be able to get that assistance, you know, from, from an inspiration like that, for me as a seminarian, like this kid and the warmth that I, that I experienced of like his openness, like a priest is taking care of me. This is so awesome. And for me in my fatherhood, you know, like to sacrifice mother, father, sister, brother, kids, lands, you know, for the sake of the gospel, it was like, this, he's like my kid. And I got to have that beautiful experience. And it opened me up even more courageously to take the step towards celibacy. And it gave me that mystical encounter of being a father to many. And, you know, I just, I think of that inspiration as being something that was probably very, very motivating for him.
0: Yeah. And just the pure, pure hearts of children. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean,
2: growing up Anglican at the time, you're like, you know, the church is... Just a big Jesuit plot to mm. take over England or you know, just you know, just a lot of ill will towards I the think
0: he wanted to be a, a Anglican priest,
2: didn't he? I, I think, yeah, you know, early in his life as one of the considerations to yeah. be, you know.
0: Yeah, he was really Anglican. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was <clears throat> like he grew up Anglican. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Obi-Wan Kenobi. What was G. K. Chesterton? He was he Catholic or he was Anglican he too. Was he Anglican, converted yeah. too. Yeah. He did too. Yeah. Could you imagine sitting around England with GK Chesterton and Tolkien? Tolkien, yeah. CS Lewis. Lewis. Man, just they used to like hang out. I know. Mm -hmm. I mean, golly.
1: They're, just, they're, and the competitive nature of literature at that time—could you imagine just writing back and forth with one of your closest confidants and friends, and just ch- the challenge there and that motivation to, that that led them to create the worlds of Narnia and Lord of the Rings?
2: You know, God, the table
1: man. that they they would hang out and drink beers and smoke yeah. pipes at is still there, it's like still their there. table.
2: Yeah. Yep. You know what uh, J.R.R. stands for? No, I don't actually. Jolkin Rolkin, Roken, Token. <laughs> Oh, wow, it doesn't.
1: Well, <laughs> I could see I could see that happening at the bar that they used to hang out with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Jay, oh, he's taking a knife and just joking, roking, roking, They they have a, the bathroom stall where he carved his name on a knife. So. <laughs> no, when they were doing shots, he'd be like joking, roking, roking, joking. And they're like, "Damn." Well, maybe we should tell everybody what it stands for, just to I, kind I of. I have fair. no idea what it stands okay, for. Great. That's well, just that's yeah. so for
1: our brilliant listeners, throw it in the comments section. We want to hear from you. I have a thing called the Googles. The Googles. <laughs> it's, yeah. John Ronald. John
2: Ooh. Ronald, and then Rule something. I don't. I don't know. Mm. Ruthiel. R E U E L.
0: Roads.
2: So you know, you know, while we're in England and talking about Anglicism, Anglicanism, the last king of England, who was Catholic, was a deathbed conversion, and this is, this is hundred years after Henry VIII and the conversion of England to an Anglican country. Hmm. So, um, King Charles II, him and his brother were the last Catholic kings of England, and you know.
0: Yeah, I heard, like they, they like, you know, you can't No, you're not allowed to be. You're not allowed to be. No. By, yeah. by the laws of their country, you're not right allowed now. to be a Catholic now Today. to this day. Yeah. There was some child in the family that
2: was... Yeah, it was the granddaughter of uh, Prince Rainier and... Um, uh, Grace Kelly, uh, King and Queen of Monaco, who as, I think she was like 17th in line for the throne of England. Just 17? 17th. Yeah, she had a
0: pretty good shot. Yeah.
2: yeah 16, <laughs> I mean, 16 people go down. <laughs> hey, look, it's a cool story. It's like, you know, I'm 17th in line for the, you know. I'm getting become Catholic. Dude, if you were like 58th in line, you'd be like, I'm 58th in line for the, you know, mayorship of Houston. And you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you are like so, I'm going to be a I'm going to be Buddhist, man. I don't even care. I don't even care. No, no, <laughs> so she converted and she was boxed yeah, off the that's awesome. off the rolls. So anyway, King Charles II, he was one of the most beloved kings of England, uh outwardly Anglican, followed all the I guess the customs of the Anglican Church. And everyone thought, okay, cool, you know, he didn't even like relaxed laws of kind of uh, intolerance against Catholicism. He like no one knew about it. But On June 1st, 1670, Charles II signed a secret treaty with the King of France, King Louis XIV of France. And its terms were that in exchange, England would send France 60 warships and 400 soldiers to assist the French in their war against the Dutch. In exchange, Charles II would receive a yearly pension, 6,000 soldiers if there was ever a rebellion against him. But the king of France also said one stipulation for me signing this treaty: you have to convert to Catholicism.
0: Oh, it was a forced mm-hmm. conversion.
2: No, it wasn't forced. I, you know, they were they were related, and he said, "Look, here's, you know, come on, bring bring England back to the church, you know, bring gotcha. Mary's dowry back, you know." So, uh, 15 years later, you know, he hadn't converted because you know wasn't allowed. But then he, he woke up one morning and he had had a stroke in his sleep. So he was, it was clear he wasn't gonna get better. So the secret treaty was then time to be enacted. And um, all the Anglican bishops were like, you know, heads of state and, you know, the king of England yeah. is the head of the Anglican church. That's like, you know, we have the Pope, they have the king or the queen, that's the head of their church. And he's on his deathbed and they lock the doors and they wouldn't let any of the Anglican bishops in. And they're like, what's going on? And they snuck a priest in, hmm. a Catholic priest, uh, gave him last rites and uh, gave him communion. But because he had had a stroke, he couldn't swallow, so they had to open the doors and said, bring in water. And all the Anglican bishops are looking and like, what's going on in there? And they gave him water and um, you know, he was able to receive and then he died. Viaticum,
0: wow. Yeah. It's like my dad. Mm. Yeah. yeah, bro. It's awesome. hmm Good way to die. Yeah, the grace for of a happy death. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, That's we've been talking about right that
1: there.
0: a lot. Yeah, Ryan and I on the way here. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a, I was so privileged to be present yeah. for Ryan's father's death and to be able to celebrate the sacraments with him. Yeah. And to pray over him the commendation rituals and the apostolic pardon yeah. and. um... I mentioned to Ryan just yesterday how after having these experiences of praying with people specifically at the at the point of death, it just settles you so deeply in your priesthood as a priest. And I left there and, and drove back Ryan's mom and his brother. And by the time I got back to the rectory, it was probably like two o'clock in the morning or so. And I just, you know, laid down on my bed and I just said, God, thank you so much for inviting me to this way of life. I could have never imagined how beautiful it is. And and the grace of a happy death reveals the beauty of God's presence to us at our difficult, most difficult hour. And uh, to see that there for, for Ryan's dad was pretty special as I prayed over him with the relic of Padre Pio and blessed yeah. him. It was awesome, awesome yeah. experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, imagine if Queen Elizabeth died, right? She's, And then everyone said, she converted to Catholicism. People were like, what? what? Yeah. I mean, this yeah. was a big deal. That's a big deal. And, for sure. and, and England doesn't even care much for religion anymore. I mean, the yeah. attendance rates are not, you know, what they were at the so time. So did they he, know it after this happened? Well, they did because his brother, uh, James II, succeeded him and he was openly Catholic. So he after, you know, uh, 1670 How could
0: you be how could you secede him and be openly Catholic? Because he was
2: his his brother set him as the successor. And this is before oh.
0: this okay. is before
2: they put in the anti-succession. Gotcha. Okay. But there hadn't been a Catholic uh, monarch in England since Henry VIII's daughter. Mm. I mean, so this is, you know, 1540s. So like 120 years after Henry VIII, I mean, this was a firmly, right. the church had lost England and just boom, out of the blue, they converted back. So there's a lot of hope. And then uh, Charles II, he, he came and then, but he was deposed three years later in a revolution and England hasn't had a
1: Catholic monarch since. Huh. It's a shame. It is. Yeah. I mean, who? I don't understand who would govern that, that rule if it's the king's decision to become Catholic. Well, I think by the,
2: what's uh, Magna Carta that the king or the queen has certain duties to the lords, and his king or queenship depends on that. I gotcha. So, you know, it's not an absolute monarchy, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, English Catholicism, or pre reformation English Catholicism, has always been, I think, maybe the most uh, fascinating strain of Catholicism to me. It's the one that, I, to me, really seems just um, one that would really resonate in the world today. It was vibrant, it was lively, it was very earthy, um, very joyful, but very somber at the same time. And um, it's always been a shame to me, looking when I'm reading history books, that you know, during the Reformation, over you know, a divorce, that you know, uh, yeah, the church over lost something like England, that. yeah. Oh. And, you know, and here's the, the crazy thing is that the very uh, child that uh, Henry VIII, or the first woman that he was married to, um, her child was the one that actually ended up succeeding him after all of his— Right. You know, and she was Catholic. Mm. So, you know, he did all this and put just so much division in Christianity and— it
0: ended up not it, even mattering. Well, it did matter. Like there no, was. No, he didn't have a male heir. He ended up his daughters succeeded him. Yeah, but it, there was still a lot of destruction. Oh, I that occurred. Well, it, that. Did,
2: it never achieved the goal that he was hoping for.
0: Right, right. So, it just it breaks
1: my heart, guys. I, I can't tell you how often, especially at funerals, when I c- celebrate the mass and prior to the distribution of holy communion, where I have to pastorally you know, mention to everyone how grateful I am that everybody's there to pray with the family. And at this point in the time and when we celebrate the Holy Eucharist for Catholics, we believe that Jesus is truly present under the appearance of bread and wine. And if you're not Catholic and you'll not be receiving communion with us, I still invite you to participate and you can come forward for a blessing or pray with us in solidarity from your pews, et cetera. But I have to be very honest, you know, like it it hurts my heart, man. You know, like I, I just, I'm so sad that there's so many divisions, not only interdenominationally, but I mean, look at the division that you just mentioned to me yesterday, Shield. you know, the biggest split in modern Orthodox history. The Russian Orthodox Church breaks ties with Constantinople. And, or even within our own Catholic ranks, you know, the conservatives and the liberals and the, and the charismatic and the tradies and, and all these different uh, divisions throughout history. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking because you can hear the suffering of Jesus and his desire for us to be one, that ut unum sent. And man I would love to work in that in that field and be able to by the grace of God maybe create some bridges I don't know but it's yeah. it's so painful. Pray yeah. for the unity of the church, pray for the unity of Christians, please. And pray for the
0: grace of a happy death. Boom. Mm-hmm. Please. Please <laughs> do it. St. Right. Joseph's the guy to go to for that.
2: Yeah. All right, so let's let's take this, you know, out of um out Europe. of out of Europe, and let's go to the Old <laughs> West, the Wild 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 West. Rest. So, another famous person who uh, converted uh, is one of the most notorious gunfighters of all time, and one of the most notorious cowboys, Doc Holliday.
0: Oh, oh, wow, wow. Yeah. the real one, the real one. Oh, crazy, Amiel Huckberry, hook, Huckberry. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the the best. Characters in a dude, movie in a movie ever, ever. absolutely. I mean, it, it was Val, Oh, dude, just I, I feel the same way. Golly, he was, <laughs> and awesome. when he
1: stepped up and he was like, "I'll be you, Huckleberry." <laughs> oh man, that was just boss, man. He's all sweating and all <laughs> sick looking. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like like this one was <laughs> last night.
2: <laughs> all pasty. <laughs> yeah, Val Kilmer in uh, Tombstone was yes awesome. Val, if you're incredible. listening, dude, solid job for sure.
0: Yeah,
2: I yeah. That's my wife's absolute favorite movie. I think she's Just watched. It's one of mine, too. Really? Okay. Yeah. One of mine, too. So anyway, Doc Holliday, actually, you know, after a resolute life of drinking and huckleberrying. <laughs> and straight smoking fools at the OK Corral. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, he converted to Catholicism, you know. And, uh, you know, from the movie, you know, he's he was very sick. You know, he had— um, I don't know, whatever. Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Yeah, tuberculosis. Probably had cirrhosis too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He probably probably did. A little fatty
2: liver. (laughs) Yeah, he had a a rose liver. (laughs) So he, um, you know, he eventually, his tuberculosis got him, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was on his deathbed. And this is after his days of, you know, gunfighting were over. And he was in uh, Colorado, I believe. And... um, his he had a cousin who had become a nun and he had kept in correspondence with her throughout his life and her influence had always kind of made him consider the church and when he got uh towards the end of his life he was dying of tuberculosis and he was like in oh. a in a hospital uh, waiting to die and um he became friends with the local priest and right before he um Right before he died, he was received into the church. So mm-hmm. after a
0: life of just, did the nun his cousin hook him up with a priest? Or no, no, she just kind of influenced and and taught him. About she was it. like that child with yeah, Sir
1: Alec Guinness. That's right. It's yeah. So Doc Holiday. Doc Holliday, man, the Wild Wild West. I got, a, I got a text the other oh, day from from a friend of mine, Kelsey Ballman from the University of Florida. Shout out to the Gators and beating LSU. That was a huge win. Um, but she sent me the, this guy's tweet and he said, Just took a DNA test and found out I'm um, 30% ye and 70% Ha. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was
0: funny. That's good stuff. So. Yeah.
1: Shout out to Johnny <laughs> Mayo.
2: So, here, you know, we'll keep it out west then, since we're, you know, yin and Han. <laughs> so, one of the most famous, and I think the person most responsible for creating the lore and the mythology around the Old West was Buffalo Bill Cody, right? Uh, Buffalo Bill was just extraordinarily famous because what he did is he was essentially taking the cowboy lifestyle and he was bringing Native Americans with him and he's putting on Old West shows back east mm-hmm. and that you know the mythology around the gunfighter and the cowboys and indians and and just the life out there was really kind of perpetuated and fermented by these shows that's where the conceptions of the old west came from so his shows became extraordinarily popular you know this is before tv and you'd see cowboys riding around on guns and they're shooting uh, riding around on horses shooting guns in the air <laughs> and they they had native americans with them and you know, reliving the Old West. Well, he took his Old West show to Europe. And he's taking, he was touring Europe. Buffalo okay. Bill did that? Buffalo Bill, yeah. Golly. Yeah. So, well, when you're in Europe, you've got to stop in Rome. Yeah. So, he took his Old West show to the Vatican. <laughs> and he performed the show for <laughs> Ye... Oh. Yeah. Sorry. That's, sorry, man. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's, he's
1: like doing that in front of the Pope. No, I'm you wonder
2: what the. So is Leo the Thirteenth? Oh, and yeah. Leo the Thirteenth was like, it's oh. pretty strange. He's like, dude, is, what's your problem, man? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Would he, you get out of the papal palace, please? No, I'm like, done with your yee and hauling around.
0: What's it that your donkey's with you? <laughs> he just looked at him. He's like, Americans. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Wasn't he the one who wrote uh, the encyclical about the heresy of uh, Americanism? Oh, Buffalo, uh, no, Buffalo 13, Bill. <laughs> yeah, Buffalo, yeah Bill. Buffalo Bill wrote that encyclical. Yeah, Leo. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So anyway, so he, you know, Buffalo that Bill. But
1: this inspired him this is to write that things, encyclical. Yeah. Wow, these guys,
2: okay. man, these guys starting to make connections give now. Me, mm-hmm. Give me a pen. <laughs> so anyway, did they bring the the old West show, and they're cruising around. Um, um, Vatican City and performing the show. And as part of the show, the Native Americans went up to uh, Pope Leo XIII and were like like doing like some of their war chants and everything. And he's like, <laughs> didn't know how to react. And then he stood up to applaud and all the Native Americans kneeled and he didn't know what to do. So he gave him a blessing. But what he didn't know is that almost all these Native Americans were Catholic. Oh, Yes. Because they had all been, you know, converts from, you know, uh, Jesuit missionaries. Yeah, Jesuit missionaries. Jesuit and Franciscan yeah. missionaries. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, they. So he. So when they received the blessing, they all made the sign of the cross, and the Pope was absolutely blown away. Because uh, he's like, I didn't, I didn't know they were Catholic, right? He's like, these are my people. I didn't know that. So anyway, but he's like,
0: throw this letter away. I'm gonna write a little one, like less tone. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually, you know, Buffalo Bill packed up the show and uh, he was
2: nearing his death again. And uh, he'd been a Freemason his whole life and, you know, kind of maybe exploiting um, some of the cultures and whatnot. But um, at the end of his life, he again um, asked for the conversion to the Catholic Church. Again, another deathbed conversion that, you know, he'd lived this kind of crazy, wild life of, Old West and then traveling the world and doing all kinds of things. And then finally, at the end of his life, the only thing that he was left with was his eventual meeting with God and how he wanted to approach that. And his conversion to Catholicism again was, you know, what he decided to do.
1: How beautiful, dude. Yeah. That's excellent. If you're interested in the conversion of the Native Americans in in and around like the 15th, the 16th, 17th centuries, 18th centuries and beyond, there's some really interesting historical documents that have been uh, you know, coming out of the woodworks, literally in the state of Florida. Just a few years ago, we opened up the cause of canonization for the lead proto-martyr Antonio Quipa, and I think over a hundred martyrs they've been able to recover. Um, and just fascinating. I was able to be there in the diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, and be there for the opening of the cause of canonization. And Antonio Quipa was a native himself that was likened to St. Joseph and his virtue and, and his goodness. And he is that lead martyr, a married man who is just a really uh, beautiful witness who had a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who had a vision of her, you know, a first recorded apparition, vision of the Blessed Mother when he was being crucified and ultimately martyred for the faith there in uh, Northwest Florida. But there's some beautiful stories. So check that out online. Google the Martyrs of the State of Florida missions there. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, there's actually, there's a
2: lot of very famous Native Americans who converted, uh, Chief Seattle, who the city of Seattle is named after, actually was a Catholic convert. Um, Squanto, who saved the pilgrims, yep. you know, at the first Thanksgiving, was a Catholic. Um, Pocahontas mm-hmm. was Catholic. Yeah. Um, probably the most famous image of a Native American is the one of Sitting Bull. He posed for a photograph. And typically, you only see the photograph up to maybe you know midway of his chest. But when you see the full picture, he's actually wearing a crucifix, and um, mm. he had a very good relationship with the French missionaries. He mistrusted the American government because, for you know, obvious reasons. But he had a great relationship with the French missionaries, which he called the Black Robes. And one of his most tri- uh, treasured possessions was a crucifix that the Black Robes have given to him, and he wore it his whole life. And there's there's conflicting reports of whether or not he actually converted on his deathbed too.
0: Hmm.
2: Wow, yeah, beautiful history. You know, let's get out of the old west now and let's go to. Uh, you know, you just brought us some college football, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's the most
1: famous college football program of all time? Not the University of Florida. It's debatable. <laughs> it is debatable. Is it? Yeah. We we know it's Notre, Notre Dame. I was about yeah. to say Notre, Notre Dame. Dame, like is, and Notre Dame's playing very well this year.
0: They basically play in a museum. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, they do. They do. Is there better programs? Maybe. Yeah.
2: Have they is there teams that have produced more players? Probably. Is there one that's more iconic as a college football team? Probably not.
0: Not more iconic, no. no. So who and
2: their most iconic coach? Uh the first Newt Rockney. Yeah, no. Newt Rockney. <laughs> Newt Rockne is a Catholic convert. You know, you would think, you know, back in the 1930s. They would know, mandate that, yeah, like the like, Kingdom of England. Right. But no, he was actually a, um, a Lutheran. And he, you know, he got the job because he's just a good football coach. And, you know, as any good football coach would do, you really look out for your players, right? So, you know, during, you know, early in his career, they had the four horsemen, right? like, you know, Red Granger and all them. And this, this was like... This is before really the NFL is popular. These are the most famous football players in the country. And some of the things they got into and people tried to exploit them and hangers-on uh, kind of affected him and bothered him. And he wanted to protect his students and his players. So he always kind of made sure he knew where his guys were going. Well, one day he couldn't sleep, so he they were on a, they were on a road game. And they were playing early the next day, and he couldn't um, he couldn't sleep because he was going over game plans and whatever in his head. So he went into the lobby, and he saw some of his kids sneaking out. It's like four thirty in the morning, five in the morning. He's like, "Where are these guys going?" Right? And then he saw some other ones coming. He's like, "I'm going to go follow them." And he followed them, and they were going to church. Wow! And he's like, "These kids have traveled. They've got a huge game, tons of pressure." And they're sneaking out to go to church. So he asked him, He's like, Why are you doing this? He's like, and the players are like, Because of the Eucharist. And he was he was amazed that these kids who had so much pressure put on would, would just make it such an absolute point, no matter what, to make it to church. So he started going with them to church. How ba- awesome. The yeah. Eucharist, baby. Yeah, man. And he developed a love for the Eucharist and natural food. And he converted to Catholicism. Um, off the example of his players. So a leader of men and a a man who, you know, is legendary for leading young men was actually led by young men
1: to the church. That's outstanding. That is outstanding. Yeah, and
0: you know, I mean, with different Christian faiths, it's like, you know, the difference between them, and that's the the one thing that I point to is the Eucharist, you know?
1: The source and summit of our faith. It is the structure that has kept the church established through every generation and every age from you know great moments in the history of the church with saints leading or even in the in the poorer times when sinners have have really caused scandal for the church through it all the eucharist is that stability oh my goodness miracle the foundation of something that will last through the test of time that's a cool conversion story. beautiful conversion story yeah that's cool wow so there there's a quote from his um,
2: from his uh, autobiography. And it said, In a minute or two, the last squad hurried out of the elevator and made for the door. I stopped them and asked them if they too were going to Mass, and they replied that they were. I decided to go along with them, although they probably probably did not realize that these youngsters were making a powerful impression on me with their piety and devotion. And when I saw all of them walking to the communion rail to receive and realized the several hours of sleep they sacrificed in order to do this— I understand, understood for the first time what a powerful ally their religion was to those boys and their work on the football field. Then it was that I was really beginning to see the light, to know what I was missing in my life. And later on, I had the great
1: pleasure of joining my boys at the communion rail.
0: Mm. Wow. Mm. Cool.
1: My first assignment as a priest was at a high school, St. Joseph Academy in St. Augustine. And my last year there, I would celebrate mass for the football team every Friday. And the last year we went undefeated in one states. And the in that beautiful experience of gathering together um, each and every Friday. These kids, they were incredible, man, and and they wanted to spend time with the Blessed Sacrament before. They wanted to pray the St. Michael prayer before the game. Man, they, they wore they wore the image of St. Michael underneath their pads and stuff like That's that. Awesome. Like they were just they were incredible kids, and I had an awesome experience too of bringing in the captain and quarterback of the team to Catholicism, receiving him and confirming him. Wow! At the mass with the football team, wow! The bishop gave me permission to do that.
0: Oh, that's it was cool. such cool. a cool
1: experience, man! I, I just can't help so but remember you, so that. So
0: as a chaplain, um, when a team that you're the chaplain for wins state, or you know, that's pretty
1: oh enjoyable. And huh? you know, I was talking about the the proto martyr, the uh, Antonio Quipa and the companion martyrs. Yeah. We had to play in Tallahassee, so that's a pretty long drive from St. Augustine, Florida to Tallahassee. Yeah. Probably like about three hours, three mm-hmm. four hours. We went all the way with the buses to the grounds where the opening of the cause of the, the martyrs of Florida before the game. And I made these guys walk around by themselves in silence and to just absorb that beauty of that of the of the grounds where that's martyrs were cool. killed for their faith and i'm getting chills just thinking about it wow. now but it was such a cool experience to watch them walk out some of them were praying the rosary some of them took their shoes off and were walking through the fields and it just really hyped them up for the game man it was really cool
0: that's so cool yeah all right so we
2: got we got time for one more conversion story yep. excellent now here's a name that I, you, you you probably won't recognize immediately, but then once you understand who she is, you'll absolutely recognize it. And uh, the last convert convert we're going to talk about is Norma McCorvey. That doesn't ring Norma a bell for McCorvey. me. Do you know? So she's more well known as Jane Roe. Jane oh from Roe v Wade oh, from Roe Wow. V. Wade.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so Jane Roe is like the plaintiff or something. Like she was. That. Yeah, so, she was a plaintiff. So. She was a
2: young mother in, in, in a troubled marriage, and she was facing an unplanned pregnancy. And her friends told her to uh, say she had been raped so she can get an abortion legally. But that fell through, and she wasn't able to get one. So there was she was then referred to an um, attorney who had been looking for a case to kind of serve as the I guess to the drive pl- through the court,
0: to drive to, to get the courts, to the Supreme Court, to get, to to get court, a yeah. law or something like that. So yeah.
2: yeah, so they they this attorney Sarah Weddington told McCorvey, um, "I'm going to take your case," and she used it as her platform to push, you know, up to, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade, Roe being Norma McCorvey. But here's the crazy thing: that by the time that the case got to the Supreme Court, McCorvey already had her daughter. She never actually got an abortion. What? Yeah. So the case Roe v. Wade, the child that was in question was actually
0: born. Wow.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, I knew she converted. She she converted, but I didn't know that she had the child. Well, maybe the case was centered around the transactional thing that couldn't occur. Could occur. Right, yeah. and, and yeah. it was. But I think I think it'd be
2: <clears throat> interesting for most people when they haven't really considered that the 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 child, the life that hung in the balance, there was oh, actually yeah. Yeah. given birth. So. Um, you know, after the case, you know, she, her life was kind of a wreck and she, she had a very hard life. Um, she, Is she still alive. No, she passed away a few years ago. Gotcha. After that case, she, um, um, continued to her work in, uh, pro choice advocacy. Um, but then, you know, as the years went on, I think, you know, she started to feel a lot of guilt about her involvement and. Uh, what her case had brought to the country and to the world and into into people, and um, you know, she said, "I was a very confused twenty year old, twenty one year old, with one child and facing an unplanned pregnancy. At the time, I fought to obtain legal abortion, but truth be told, I have three daughters and never had an abortion. And she has those daughters, and because of her case, a lot of other people don't have their daughters, they don't have their sons, mm. and she felt a lot of guilt and a lot of regret for that." and um, she she lived with that lie that she told her that she told herself she said i live with the lie that what i had done was okay and finally she realized that abortion didn't solve the problems that she thought her life was going to experience from having a child and she eventually because she had all the kids, she had the kids, yeah, and and but then I think the prospect. So she had a rough, she had a rough life, sure. Um, but eventually, after being in that case and being in pro-choice advocacy, she eventually converted first to Christianity, but then ultimately to Catholicism um, a couple of years before her death. Wow. So Roe in Roe versus Wade is Catholic. She converted to Catholicism wow. because even
0: she, the Roe. Knew something, something that was inherently— rough, right? Yeah, she kind of—your conscience, right. you know? You know, I I have to say
1: this. You know, so often the Catholic Church always gets pinned as being that ultra-conservative institution that, you know, lays out all of these laws and these rules and judges, you know, everyone for their sins and, and whatnot— you know, abortion every every year when the March for Life came around. And I remember many times with Ryan Delacrosse in DC and, and uh, you know, participating in the march is such a powerful testimony to what the Catholic Church believes in. And, but I also want to present another side of this too, because I can't tell you how many times people will come to me to speak about having an abortion and that regret having the abortion and then feel terrible. And then, it, you know, we're the ones who receive them after Planned Parenthood. We receive them after they follow through with the abortion. And I think it's just absolutely beautiful to see God's loving mercy present in the church that receives Roe from Roe v. Wade back into the arms of the embrace of Christ. Yeah, when when she made
2: that decision, she they didn't, they didn't force her to convert, but when she found it in her heart that it was time to convert, the church was there for her. Yeah. You know, that's I think that's incredibly powerful. and really think that there's an incredible amount of wisdom in what Pope Francis did when he gave you know that dispensation that you know
1: priests can forgive abortions because mm-hmm. previously in the Catholic church it had always been that Pope abor- Francis gave that it, it was yeah. reserved to the tribunal the apostolic penitentiary that only the holy father could absolve and forgive that sin
0: just but, recently mm-hmm. yeah yeah well,
1: yeah and it was it was also given by the the bishops to the to America because of the epidemic that it is. And then the bishops gave permission and an indult for the priests to receive that in confession and give absolution a number of years back, I think under the papacy of John Paul II. Yeah. But this officially, universally throughout the world, Pope Francis opened that up to now, priests. It's still being it's still a forgiveness directly from the Holy Father,
2: but with the indult mm-hmm. of the Pope. But I, I think it's really wise because no matter where you come down yeah. on abortion, there's a, there's a lot of hurt around it. Whether there is, it's yeah. And, and the church, you know, has been in the in, in the middle of the debate. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the amount of healing that she has to offer is probably just as important as her mm-hmm. defensive life is also her her um, uh, the church's a willingness to heal the lives that have been affected by it one way or the other. Yes.
0: You asked me if I cried on another episode with a movie, but I remember when I was at Assumption Church, I was in the seminary at the time, and I went into this convent, the little convent, old convent. Mm -hmm. I guess it wasn't used as a convent anymore. Maybe it was. And uh, my job was just going and clean it up you know, and everything, because they just had a retreat. So I didn't know what kind of retreat it was. I just walked in and um, started cleaning stuff up, and then I went into where they had like a little altar, and then there was this basket in front of the altar, and there were these roses there. And I just knew, like I knew that that was the retreat. It represented it. I just like, like, it just hit my heart, man. I was just like, whoa, these Mm. women you Know mm-hmm. that they had an abortion and this was like mm-hmm. a Rachel's Vineyard, yeah, type of a retreat. I think it was wow, yeah. but it just you know,
1: I just what's Rachel, don't, I don't what's know that pain? It's, it's a retreat for uh men and women, uh, primarily, many men, mostly women attend mostly, the yeah. retreat, but it's for people who are suffering after an abortion to receive that prayer for healing and to receive counsel and to receive the support that people need. Um, after following through with something that they may not feel very secure about um, moving toward. And it's been a a beautiful ministry in the church for many, many years. And I'm hoping to participate in some upcoming retreats in my diocese in Florida. But uh, yeah, it's important to remember that the church is not a cold institution, but she is a mother. The church is a mother to us. And she is constantly drawing us in to clean us up, to heal us, to listen to us, to hold us when we need to be held. And uh, I'm just so proud to be a Catholic. I'm proud to be a Catholic priest and uh, to continue to participate in this beautiful work. Norma Norma McCorvey, uh, she converted in
2: 1998 at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Dallas, Texas. Dallas. And uh, she said, uh, I think it's safe to say these are her words. This is Jane Roe from Roe versus Wade. She said, I think it's safe to say that the entire abortion industry is based on a lie. I am dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my name. Mm. You will read my name in history books, but now I am dedicating to spread, I'm dedicated to spreading the truth about preserving the dignity of all human life from natural conception to natural death. That's, wow. a, that's a very powerful conversion. I mean, I don't know if you can swing from one extreme to another quite as, as much and um, paradoxical yeah
1: mm-hmm. that's Beautiful. crazy man this is this has been awesome and you know I, I've got to say this too, guys because it's so important to not close the doors on anybody I know you know and we so often do it in in public you know spheres and politics and restaurants restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, I closed the door on gotta that lady. Say, I got to say this. I, I, was, I set oh, up no, these got devotional. I know, yeah, I got oh, a story. Man. I'm you sorry. closing the doors? So do you remember the doors of mercy? Yes. Yeah. And, oh, and, the, and the Holy Father said, you know, you could set up devotional doors. So not only the cathedrals, but yeah, different parishes, churches and yeah. parishes. So I was at St. Joseph Academy again with one of the students who came to daily mass there. And I set up this beautiful, I had the Latin inscription of Pope Francis's words and these foam boards that looked like you know roman pillars and stuff and it was the door of mercy and i had this icon of saint joseph painted by hogar de la madre that actually housed that convent at at assumption in jacksonville so i'm walking in and we're opening up the doors and she's she's coming through and i slammed the doors of mercy on her <laughs> and she hasn't let it go she's like you you slammed the doors of mercy on me <laughs> Now you totally made me forget what I was going to say saying, in the first place. Uh, you were saying so
0: something now, about yeah. shutting
1: doors? So, you know, <laughs> oh, shutting doors on people and <laughs> judging people and, and not leaving them. It's an open reality. Our lives, you know, if we convert at, you know, 20, 25, late in life have I loved you, oh Lord, Augustine's age, whatever age, we can't limit each other and we have to remain open and prayerful. This is why the church is against the death penalty people because we have to work not only for our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we should be courteously thinking about our neighbor. We should be lovingly to that point of of that loving nature that Christ calls us to. Think of how much he thinks of you and how we should think of each other and not closing the doors on our neighbors or people that have a different belief or a different political established position that we're so staunchly against. We need to remain open and hopeful and working for each other's salvation. Yeah, there's probably, you know, people listening, there's, there's probably people in
2: your life who are either hurting and the church would, you know, heal that hurting. Or there's maybe women you know who have procured an abortion and having someone tell them that there there is you know forgiveness for that it's really Mm -hmm. important um
0: and and there's probably people out there that you know that are because the hurting comes from the fact that they think it's unforgivable that they you know yeah there's there's no end to god's mercy and and
2: there's also people out there uh, that you know that are probably very close to the tipping point where they are going to convert so you know keep your eyes out you know for those situations to where uh, you know you can be that instrument of mm-hmm. god's work in their lives
0: mm-hmm. the oh. instrument of hope like that little child walks well, up I just With keep Obi-Wan right Kenobi yeah. Obi- yeah 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 mm. if it so is what a great episode guys i love yeah.
2: this it's awesome well we got one more thing to do here we go and oh. we back on the chopping block that's right so now we're talking about conversions. okay So you know what the inarticulum mortis is. Help me. That's the the indulgence for at the end of life, you get a complete, um, a complete. uh, Remission. Remission of Mm -hmm. all temporal punishment for sins. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: But it's a one time um, indulgence that you receive at the moment of death. Mm -hmm. You receive that, you die. You come back to life, and then they they shock you, and they come
1: back to life, and you live.
2: <laughs> no bueno, no bueno. Can you get it again?
1: I see so th- this is this is the apostolic pardon that I just prayed over your dad. I yeah. mean, yeah, 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 you know, it, it's it's a beautiful prayer, and I I have to say. He's by even question? No, I'm not stalling. By even questioning it, I'm not. Normally, I do stall. I am not going to stall this because I feel profoundly confident in God's mercy. We cannot limit God's mercy, people. This is exactly yeah. what we're just talking about. You, you, what are you going to be like? So no, nope, like you can't. You
2: already yeah, had a like, once. sorry. <laughs> yep. Sorry. <laughs> but it's an
1: indulged act. And
2: then indulgence is tied directly to a very specific moment and act in specific
1: conditions. Maybe it doesn't count. This, there's rules, Padre. It's not, this is not, it's not the Wild West. <laughs> so for example, I prayed the apostolic pardon over your pop. And then we had a period of silence and I had already celebrated the anointing. I did the absolution. I did everything leading up to this moment of silence. And now, you know, the ritual is concluded and we're sitting there and praying. And then all of a sudden I get inspired to take out the relic of Padre Pio and place the, the relic on his forehead and to pray the Hail Holy Queen. Yeah. And we prayed the Hail Holy Queen. And then I blessed him in Latin with the relic. And just the effect of that, like, what is that? It's, it's not a formalized indulgence. But in a way, the effect is absolutely rooted in the indulgence of God's mercy, because God's mercy cannot be limited, and it cannot be limited by some type of mechanical formula.
0: Ooh. It is by the Spirit. I concede. Get some. I can see. Yeah. I think he's got you on this one. Right. Good try. You had him on the nope, last one. For I had sure. him on the last
1: one, but yeah, this yeah. one—the last, last one. one was kind of tough, though, and I've yeah. still been thinking about the yeah. last one. Yeah, but I mind-boggling. Yeah. Space and time. <laughs> space and That's time. That's the problem. Well, I mean,
2: space and time, we are out of time.
0: That's right, man. So before we leave, though, show. I want to
2: remind everyone, um, You know, please um, comment, subscribe. Make sure you leave reviews for us um, You know, on the platforms that you're listening. Those really help us uh, get the show out to more people um, and make sure that they can listen in the conversation, join in the fun, and learn with us. Uh, you can go to catholictalkshow.com. Uh, on there, you can subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, uh, Spotify, any of the services that you prefer. And we really appreciate
1: it if you do that. Thanks for spending time with us, guys. It was really, it was awesome. It's always a pleasure being with you guys.
0: Yep, that's a wrap on the Catholic Talk Show. And may God continue to
1: bless and enrich you. Live graciously, my people. Peace.